So I guess a forewarning for everyone, um, what I'm going to talk about today is a really difficult conversation to have. Um, and I think like most people for the last month, I've been utterly paralyzed by the news coming out of Palestine and Israel. Um, and I think I've like experienced every kind of emotion from despair to just outrage, to moments of hope, um, to being just completely ridden by grief, um, to then sometimes being feeling part of a wider collective for change and thinking things might change, then also just completely distraught by some of the images that we've all been exposed to over the last month. Um, I think we live in a world now where we've become more and more connected through the internet and social media. We have the ability to build parasocial relationships with people um, that we don't know from the other side of the world. And we've never been able to sit at front and center and witness a genocide that's been happening um, in Palestine. And I think that really pierces through um, what it is like the experience of just being human. Um, the fact that most people I know, um, friends, family, have been devastated even from a distance by the relentless news that's coming out of the Middle East at the moment. Um, and I think we have to question our own morality if we choose to ignore it. And I know there's, 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 there's so much more uh, than just what's happening in the Middle East. And there's atrocities all around the world, um, even though it's acutely focused at the moment on Israel and Palestine. But I, I, I think it was important for me to try and sound out what I've been thinking, what I've been experiencing, um, and to be completely transparent about myself and my own biases. I'm not Arab, um, I'm not Palestinian, I'm not Jewish, I am Muslim. Um, born and brought up in London, and I probably have a unique perspective in that I grew up with uh, and still have a lot of very close Jewish friends. Um, and I say that because I don't think it's, uh, uh, it's a conflict that only uh, includes and in involves those categorizations. I, th I think it's, and I know it's far beyond that. Um, and I know and understand that it gets conflated into those boxes unhelpfully um, sometimes almost maliciously um, for the benefit of what I describe as bad actors. Um, and what I want to do, I've been, I've, been, I've been thinking about how I could really add to the conversation without it being a case of me just validating my own emotions or anger, because I've seen online that's what's been happening. I think a lot of people find themselves in echo chambers um, of people that just have the same worldview as them and um, they end up validating their own anger, making each other more angry. Um, and I don't think that's helpful. For me, I don't actually operate in an echo chamber online and I've had some really difficult conversations over the last month. Um, and at the start, it, it did upset me quite a bit because I could see I had friends um, who, who disengaged, maybe unfollowed me or blocked me or whatever um, from some of the conversations that I was trying to have. Uh, and it did get to me, to be fair, but this isn't about me. Um, and I, what I appreciate is actually I've been speaking to a lot of my Jewish friends um, in depth 
and it's helped me uh, to gain more detail and more perspective as well. Uh, and actually one of my friends, and um, I won't name him, but there was something that he said to me, uh, which I really appreciated and it started to um, help me understand things a bit better um, with more empathy. And he just told me like, don't take it personally if people are disengaging, un are unfollowing you or blocking you or angry at you. Uh, you, you can't blame people for um, feeling these emotions that are deeply personal to them. And, and I think this is a, an incredibly sensitive um, topic to discuss. Um, and I think that's the opening of what I kind of want to get to. Um, when I thought about how I'm going to shape this, maybe even write about this, um, the title came first and the idea was to uh, reach beyond our own pain. Um, I think in situations like this, I've seen an inability for people to do that. Um, and actually people fall into a trap of um, what I've read and call um, a competition of suffering. Um, one of my favorite writers is an Israeli Jewish writer called Yuval Noah Harari, um, who I'm gonna reference quite a lot today. Um, he's the author of Sapiens, Homo Deus, um, incredible books, um, and he's an incredible academic. And he talks about the danger of falling into a competition of suffering, but you can forgive it. You can forgive people let's call it sides, I don't think it should be sides. You can forgive um, Jewish, Israeli people for feeling the way they do, for feeling aggrieved um, and not having the emotional capacity to see beyond their pain. You can forgive that when an atrocity of this scale happens or atrocities of this scale happen. Um, similarly, the same for Palestinians, Arabs, Muslims, or anyone that supports um, the Palestinian cause, you can forgive them for feeling really betrayed uh, and equally as um, emotionally uh, charged um, for everything that they're experiencing um, because they don't have the capacity to see beyond their own pain. But where the issues arise, I think, and this is what um, Yuval Noah Harari actually says, and, and I'm going to quote him so I don't misquote him, um, he said the level of pain of Israel is so high at the moment that there isn't a single millimeter left to recognize any other pain in the world. It's just a psychological fact. And he acknowledges that this is the same for Palestinians living under brutal Israeli occupation. And now with this um, assault on Gaza, it's the same. You can't expect for these people to see beyond their own pain. And it's hard for these people to understand as well, especially when things become so polarized. And I've experienced this in conversations with my, with my Jewish friends as well, that it's hard to see yourself as a victim and a perpetrator at the same time. It's almost impossible for people to accept this, but actually until you're capable of understanding the concept of being a victim and a perpetrator, um, there's really no way to make any logical progress. Um, so what I want to try and do, and actually it's clear like my position on this, and I've been, um, uh, I, I guess, quote unquote, very pro-Palestinian all my life. It's, it's a cause that's very close to my heart. Um, and that's not at the expense of any other cause or any other um, people. Um, 
but equally because I have the opportunity to engage and, and hopefully respectfully, and I have done, engage with friends um, uh, who, who may have a different worldview to try and understand some of the grievances as well. Um, I'm gonna start with trying to, and, and do bear with me, anyone who, again, I know people are um, really emotionally charged by this situation, particularly um, uh, people might be seeing this and thinking, why, why, is, he, why is he giving so much airtime to this? It's important. Um, so for those of you that are um, shouting about Palestine, please continue to do so, and I'm gonna continue to do so, but I want to start, I guess mainly to regulate my own feelings and my own emotions because um, because this is such an emotionally charged situation, um, it's impossible to engage with the rational part of our brains um, when you speak about something so difficult. And uh, another Israeli Jewish uh, writer and academic who I really admire, Gabo Mate, he talks about how difficult it is to talk about this and it's, it's almost impossible to speak without emotion um, and to speak about it in a regulated and rational way. Um, it is an almost impossible task. And even at the start of this introduction, I could feel myself getting really emotional and stuttering, thinking about um, everything that's been happening. But I think a useful way for me to regulate my own emotions is actually to start with uh, some of the grievances that um, my Jewish friends have shared with me, um, which I think it's impossible, um, sorry, which I think it's really important uh, to give light to. So one of my friends um, had a long conversation with her um, and uh, she has some Israeli family as well. And, and, and some of the things that they shared with me was that um, she's never felt existentially fearful and upset um, since October the 7th in a way that she would have ever expected to have experienced in the 21st century as a Jew. Um, she talked about feeling physically sick at the brutality that took place um, on October the 7th. Uh, in the peaceful and loving communities in southern Israel, um, people that she knew and feel that she, and felt that she knew as well. Um, she also spoke about feeling really, really miserable as the news has got darker each day by the war in Gaza, with more and more innocent Palestinian lives being lost. Um, and again, I'm sharing um, the views of, of of some of my friends, um, and because of that, she felt that she's really scared for the future of the Jewish diaspora, um, but more scared for her loved ones um, still living in Israel. I think there is also like a lot of anger at people's uh, lack of education on democracy, terrorism, war and the Middle East, uh, and the history that's being shared across social media and social settings right now. Uh, I think there's a feeling that um, there's misinformation. And, and I, I, I sort of heard somewhere um, on a podcast I listened to as well, um, that when war starts, the truth dies. And I think we've experienced that on, uh, on a number of instances um, over the last month. And uh, equally, she shared with me that she feels really supported by her own community and friends as they deal with the continual heartbreak um, together and hope for a better world. Um, because it's, it's a really isolating and frightening time to be Jewish. Um, and uh, one, of my, one of my other friends who I spoke to um, told me about um, almost feeling guilty because there's still so many other people suffering, um, but they felt like they haven't had the time to grieve or worry without feeling um, 
like they were claiming some sort of victimhood, which she didn't feel they were. Um, and also just scary how um, they become accustomed to this growing sense of insecurity, uh, which is perpetuated by an intergenerational trauma that um, Jewish people experience. And, and that's something that I actually do want to talk about because um, I think for those of us uh, that have, have grown up in the 90s um, and, 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 and after, or maybe even uh, for people who are slightly older than myself, um, uh, th there's this feeling that um, Jewish safety, anti-Semitism, um, and um, the persecution of Jews was like a distant fiction um, because we may have grown up in a time where we can't really draw too much reality to those experiences and we've probably experienced and heard about and seen the persecution of other communities um, more front and center. Uh, but it's true and it can't be denied that Jews are probably one of the most if not the most persecuted communities um, over the last 2000 plus years and um, have continuously been persecuted everywhere they've gone, everywhere they've lived um, through expulsions, through um, mass murder. Um, and obviously most recently with the, um, one of the worst genocides um, that's ever happened in human history uh, in the Holocaust. Now, for a lot of us, it's it's hard to read. Uh, we, we, of course, we know about it, about the great stain on humanity, but it's it's hard for us to understand what it's like to grow up with that experience that um, people were killed in an industrial way just for being Jewish, for nothing else than just being Jewish. And that happened um, for many of our friends, um, that happened to their families, and they grew up with those stories and experiences where they know that they exist in a world where people have um, exterminated them just for being them, not for anything they've done or anything that they do, just for being Jews and to sit with that reality is, I can't even claim that I understand what that could be like. Um, I know there's, I, I know we learn about this and, and we, we sort of feel uh, inside our souls, like how, how disgusting that this could have ever happened, but to really be part of the community that experienced that on an industrial scale is not something that, um, I can entirely re fully relate to. Um, and then you have maybe like our friends and peers who grew up um, kind of also like understanding that pain, but equally distant from that idea that people killed them for being Jews and nothing else uh, through vile antisemitism. Um, and then, and they're, they're told constantly throughout their lives that um, people have persecuted you and people ha hate you enough that they would want to kill you on an industrial scale. And you kind of think, yeah, this happened in the past, but we don't experience that reality today. And then something like the atrocities of 
October the 7th for our Jewish friends um, reaffirms this notion that they've grown up with that threats to your existence exist um, and there is real fear for safety. Um, and that's something I, I know it's hard for people to reason with um, and it's so easy to dismiss as, yeah, but like it's happening to so many others and it's not really happening to Jews. The threat of it exists, but it's not really happening. But what October the 7th showed um, a lot of the Jewish community is that uh, the, the threat is very real. Now, I'm not here to sort of then follow this up by saying that being said, I've now given uh, given time to the, the grievances of Jews. A lot of that is genuinely to really try and understand what has taken up the capacity of empathy for quote unquote the other side. Um, because I do think it's true that you can be so consumed by um, your own grievances and your own emotions that firstly, that you don't have the capacity to think of anyone else or of anyone else's grievances. But secondly, that it's so severe that you begin to lose your own humanity, that you lose the ability to think about how others might be feeling. I don't want to fall into this competition of suffering where we're talking about, yes, Jews are suffering, um, but so are the Palestinians. And so there is no scale that can really help people comprehend how much suffering is being felt by the world at the moment. Um, and if we get into a competition of suffering, I think there's no winners, there's only victims and there's only losers, right? Um, and those that are suffering are completely innocent, um, which is just utterly unacceptable. So Yuvano Harari says that it's for the people of London or Beijing or Sao Paulo, because you're not in this immense pain in the same way that you can try and see both sides whilst they can't. And instead of trying to make your lives easier by seeing only victims and only perpetrators, um, whilst Israelis and Palestinians at this moment can't, and they don't have the capacity to do that. The responsibility is on everyone else to try and reason with what's happening um, and stand for something. Because until everyone else, which is the majority, begin to care. Nothing will change. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's the painful, stark reality of where we are. Um, and I think that echoes part of what I wrote down. Um, we often talk about complicity. I think uh, where complicity lies is in the middle. Like I just said, you can understand why Jews feel so aggrieved and can't see past their pain. You can understand why those supporting Palestinians constantly feel so betrayed. And for me, complicity lies in the middle for everyone else who relieves themselves and their conscience from making a stand. You should hold space for the liberation of Palestinians, for the dignity of all people, whilst also making sure that anti-Semitism is rooted out at its core. 
And I think that's what I wanted to move forward with. Now, we spent a month into, uh, I don't even know how to label it because rightfully so, I was called out because I tried to be, and I'm at fault, I tried to be really like careful and balanced and manicured with my responses. Um, and I, I called it a war. Um, and I tried to make a really balanced statement when I broke my silence away from my personal account. Um, and really like there is absolutely no symmetry in this situation. Um, I think it's quite callous to even refer to it um, as a war so as to suggest that there's any equal capacity on, on both sides. I think what's happening now away from the acute context is uh, a man-made catastrophe um, which is manifested as an assault on civilians. The facts as we stand today is and I'll, and I'll quote, that 1,405 people were killed in Israel uh, since October the 7th. These figures have actually just this week at the time of recording um, been revised down. And I, and I say that just to quote um, factually by Israel to around 1,200. More than 11,000 Palestinians in Gaza have been killed. Two thirds of them women and children and a further 2,700 uh, are reported missing and thought to be trapped under rubble. 192 medical staff have been killed and over 100 uh, UN relief workers um, have also been killed, as well as 44 Palestinian journalists. To put all of those numbers in perspective, because I know we've been hearing and seeing a lot of these figures, um, more children have been killed in one month than in all of the conflict zones in the world for the last three years combined. I think it's important to sit with that for a moment, that in one month in a strip of land, more children have been killed than in all of the conflict zones in all of the world combined for the last three years. This is whilst other wars and other atrocities have been taking place. Israeli forces have also killed 185 Palestinians in the West Bank, which um, is separate to Gaza, where uh, the current atrocities are taking place. Um, and, and I'm sure everyone would have heard uh, the West Bank is uh, not governed and has nothing to do with Hamas um, and is geographically separated uh, to another side of the land and a further 2,500 people have been injured. Um, and in all of those numbers, uh, Israel have reported that they've killed um, 60 Hamas fighters, which would be um, the legitimate deaths um, waged based on their intentions. Uh, included in that, there's been a massacre on um, refugee camps. I think most recently it was Jabalia refugee camp, which is um, the most densely populated refugee camp in Gaza. Um, and also uh, there have been reported hospital deaths now unrelated to airstrikes, which we know are happening 
but because um, the hospitals are running out of fuel, uh, which has meant that life support machines have had to be turned off. So people that otherwise might have survived, um, including a lot of premature babies have been killed um, as a result. Now, I say all of that and, and I sort of like sit back and think, I'm not trying to be another news reporter. Like each of those people in, in those numbers like had a life and each of those people meant the world to someone else or many other people, right? Um, and I try, and I really try to sit with that because sometimes I've almost become desensitized um, to what each of those figures means. Um, but I look back to my, my, my own life, right? Um, and I've been very open in my own experiences of grief. Um, I lost my mum three years ago. I lost my cousin uh, in the same year and I lost my, uh, my granddad a year ago. And just in those experiences of grief, it's completely changed my life and who I am. I've had to take two leaves of absences from work because I've been completely mentally incapacitated. And um, I've had moments where I, I'm genuinely, I, f I feel like a dead man walking because of how destructive the experience of that grief was. And then to consider that there's 11,000 of those that happened in one month, two thirds of whom um, were women and children. I can't physically comprehend that experience being multiplied on that scale for other people. Um, but it's happening and that level of happening has been inflicted on, on a people um, by other humans. It's a man-made catastrophe. Um, and it's not helpful to draw distance as, as us living in the West claiming we had nothing to do with it. It's not helpful for us to, to draw distance because I think that's exactly how um, these things are enabled. And I know I've been discussing very much to this point um, with the acute experience of what's been happening. Um, but what we know is that this experience hasn't been limited to the last month. Um, for people in Palestine and Israel, um, this violence has been experienced over the last 75 years. And for the Palestinians, um, they've been suffering this sustained level of violence um, for over seven decades. There's something that really struck me, um, which, which I, again is, I can't, I can't even begin to explain um, what this must be like, but there's a, a, a medical term that's been coined um, in Palestine because of some of the casualties. Um, and the acronym is WCNSF. W, uh, and that means wounded child, no surviving family. And we're seeing the videos of these children who So we're seeing videos of these children who 
other lone survivors in their in, in in out of their families because the rest of their family has been violently killed um, by Israeli bombs, and a lot of these children, you, you you see them wake up screaming, searching for their mothers, their fathers, and a lot of the time the doctors don't really have the heart to tell them that there's no one else left um, to care for them. Which is deeply troubling. Um, it's deeply, deeply troubling because um, what we also don't um, understand beyond that moment is that child, should they survive, um, and should all of this acute violence come to an end, someone has to take care of that child. Um, and you're seeing um, some Palestinians, uh, doctors or, or otherwise in the hospitals kind of nursing these children. And um, I've, I've seen videos of them saying, well, this is my son now. Who, who else are they gonna go and live with? These are our children now. And there's this collective spirit um, where they're bonded by this trauma. That level of suffering, I can't, I can't comprehend. But, but I have to comprehend and we have to comprehend because when we uh, get fatigued um, by the distressing news, you have to remember that this distressing news is someone else's reality. Uh, and actually by speaking about it, which sometimes I think, what's, what's the point? By speaking about it, it does it does make a difference because it raises awareness to some of the, the cruel, cruel suffer, suffering that exists um, in the world today. The other thing that I wanted to quickly touch on is that um, over 85% of the people in Gaza um, before the war lived with a type of uh, PTSD, which actually is um, a chronic traumatic stress disorder because there's no time for it to become a post-trauma because there is always uh, trauma again around the corner. So they're just living in a constant chronic state of um, stress and despair and fear. And you see the videos of kids whenever they hear planes, they're sort of looking up thinking, wait, is this gonna be our moment? Um, that's just no way to live. That's just no way for anyone to be allowed to live. Now, again, I don't want to fall into the trap of just talking about suffering to make people care. But I've realized actually in having conversations with um, friends and also the really troubling thing which I've spoken about in the past, uh, which is of Western media bias, is that a lot of people actually just don't know this stuff happens. And because of the way social media works and the way the algorithm works, um, people actually don't know that this stuff is happening, um, which is why I think we live in uh, these echo chambers of people validating their own um, angers and fears. Uh, and then they look at other people who don't share the same view and, and think, how can you be seeing the same things as me and not feeling like I do? And I actually think that they're just not seeing the same things. And part of that is because there is a framing um, to try and erase the suffering of Palestinians 
which has existed in the Western media for quite some time. And this is something that I spoke about early on. Um, BBC, for example, um, in all of their early reports, and I called it out very early on, even in, in this conflict, conflict um, that uh, they always refer to Israelis as being killed, um, whereas Palestinians just die. Uh, and there's a real insidious um, nature to that language, because language and literature is very powerful, um, and it suggests that Palestinians were effectively born into misery and born to die, whereas the Israelis are categorically killed, um, and that is the only grievance that anyone should have. And this sort of like framing in, in the Western media, I think the only thing that I've seen in the last month is that it's starting to be challenged a bit more uh, in a lot of places. And part of that is because people are speaking up and doing their own research. Um, and because social media, um, with all of its flaws, is probably more power than it ever has been. Um, and people are educating themselves for the first time. Um, and I think it's important to continue to do that. Um, and I think it's particularly important for people to um, share as best they can what they're learning um, and trying to do so in a rational, regulated way, um, which isn't ever easy to do when it's something like this. So um, one of my friends, uh, a Jewish friend of mine, uh, actually told me about another thing, which is uh, an interesting thing to consider and spoke about how Zionism has been co-opted um, and the true meaning of Zionism predating Herzl's movement is not known. I'll, I'll go into what Herzl's movement is, um, who's known as like the, the father of Zionism. Um, and there are people who use Zionism as a replacement for saying Jews. Um, and it's become a way of scapegoating and replacing the vocabulary. So when people are actually trying to genuinely be anti-Semitic, they'll just use the term anti-Zionist. And there is truth to that. And actually that is very similar. Um, it's not everyone. And it's probably a, a very small proportion of people, but that is true because it's in, it's in the same vein that um, one, of, one of the senior cabinet ministers um, of the current Israeli coalition government, Ben Gavir, he, he actually told, advised people that you should replace all of your hate-filled statements, uh, which refer to Muslims or Arabs, and just re replace those words with terrorist, and it will give you a bit more of a free pass for racism. And I think that brings us to the next topic of how people feel so deeply uncomfortable or unqualified um, or afraid to be called anti-Semitic that they don't ever speak up or speak on things. And I, I wanna quote some of the things that um, are from another Israeli uh, historian, uh, British Israeli historian um, who actually grew up in Iraq as an Iraqi Jew um, uh, before through an expulsion of um, Jews from Iraq um, to Israel. Uh, and he, 
in his own words, um, he said that there's a conflation of anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. Um, anti-Semitism is the hatred of Jews because they are Jews. Anti-Zionism is the opposition either to the Zionist ideology, the official ideology of Israel, or more commonly is criticism of specific policies of the Israeli government, particularly policies towards the Palestinians, policies of occupation. Anti-Semitism is a very ugly thing and can never be justified. Most of the anti-Zionism statements are reasonable, evidence-based and legitimate, but the problem is Israel and its friends around the world deliberately conflate the two so as to pretend to claim that any criticism of the state of Israel and its policies is anti-Semitic. Now, this is extremely problematic and it's also a lot of the reason why people are sort of on edge when it comes to speaking about the atrocities committed by um, the Israeli state, um, by its government. But we have to move past that and um, apply our critical reasoning um, and understand that when you conflate the two and you give uh, a far-right government a free pass for genocide um, with impunity, which is what has been happening in the West, um, it's going to and has already created deeply regrettable stains on humanity. So Gabo Mate actually expands on this and he says that if you're pro-Zionist uh, that believes that Jewishness is identifiable with Zionism in Israel, naturally you'll think that anybody that criticizes Israel is an anti-Semite or a self-hating Jew. Quote. Now there's this idea and I, and, and I urge people to sort of challenge um, this notion when anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism is conflated um, that I think it does a disservice, especially now to all of our Jewish brothers and sisters and friends um, that are supporting the Palestinian cause and it's growing in number. And, uh, and I really commend um, our Jewish friends that are able to do so because they are quite often ostracized by their own communities um, or live in fear that they're gonna be called traitors or um, a self-hating Jew, as Gabor Mate refers to it as. Um, but historically, um, there are, or there has been a history of Jews that have criticized Israel throughout its existence, um, not because it's um, a state for Jews or, or not because of uh, its Jewishness, but because of what it does. Um, for example, there are over 2000 Jewish Israeli rabbis and academics uh, that describe the current state of Israel as a state of apartheid, um, which many people still deny despite the evidentiary facts. Um, and again, this concept of you either support Israel or you're anti-Semitic is deeply problematic and is something that I think we have to urge people to get beyond the fear. Um, because if you know that you're not being anti-Semitic, 
being able to hold a so-called democratic state to account is very, very important. Um, now, having defined what anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism is, um, and how perhaps they've been weaponized uh, to give a free pass uh, to a dangerous far-right government um, to conduct some crazy atrocities on uh, a civilian population. Um, and this is the acute present day. Uh, and also giving a free pass for uh, the continual repression that has existed over the last eight decades. Um, you might often see in the media, and I just watched a, a video um, of Piers Morgan, who uh, this is just he's just the journalist that comes to mind this morning when he was saying that yes, I accept, yeah, the Israeli occupation, um, the settlements are a really bad thing, like the illegal settlements are a really bad thing. The settlements that exist in the West Bank. Um, similarly, I remember a video by Hillary Clinton saying, yeah, like it's terrible. They shouldn't be building those settlements. People don't realize what that phrase actually means. And the development of these settlements is, um, as Avi Schleim describes, um, the, the greatest barrier to peace that has ever existed. Um, and it prevents there being uh, a potential two-state solution um, or even any kind of statehood for Palestinians. Uh, because what that involves is stealing of land and building illegal housing for Jewish settlers, which is then protected with um, exclusive rights by uh, the IDF or um, Israeli forces um, to keep Palestinians out. And on that land, there are rules. We see plenty of videos where uh, if you're Palestinian, you can't walk down certain roads, you can't use certain facilities, um, and uh, you're kicked out from your homes. Um, that whole existence is uh, a violent form of apartheid um, and stealing of land. And uh, to suggest that it's anything less than that is, is deeply problematic. And it's not something that can be um, laughed off or dismissed um, willy-nilly. And I think we, again, because of the sanitized language that's used when it comes to all of this, um, we find it easy just to pass off as like a small grievance, but these are fundamentally the reasons why um, so much trouble and violence has been brewing um, in Palestine um, for the last 70, 80 years. Now, there's this, and I mentioned earlier about Theodore Herzl, a lot of people, uh, or some people, I think I, it, it's wrong to assume that people just understand what Zionism is. And, and there is semantics to it, because when I spoke to some of my Jewish friends, they um, often have like a different uh, definition of uh, what Zionism means to them. So I have some Jewish friends that basically say that Zionism to them means that um, they believe that Jews have uh, a right to uh, their own land and statehood. Fine. Um, but actually, the, the movement of Zionism, and I'm going to refer to what Avi Schleimler Israeli historian talks about, uh, was founded by uh, Theodore Herzl, who was a Viennese Jew um, who outlined on a pamphlet the Zionist idea for a Jewish state. Um, 
so rabbis of Vienna got together to collect money uh, and they sent two rabbis to Palestine to check out the land um, to see if it was suitable for uh, the development of a, a Jewish state. Um, they then sent a telegram back to Vienna saying, quote, the bride is beautiful, but she is already married to another man. And that's to suggest that Palestine is, is very beautiful. It would be perfect, but there is already another people living there. And actually one of the early Zionist slogans was, um, we found a land without a people for a people without a land, uh, and which was banded around um, early on and, and is quite commonly uh, uh, still referred to. But of course, there was always a people on that land uh, and to build uh, another state there would mean um, expulsion, repression, mass murder, and um, taking of land for it to facilitate um, the establishment of another land there. Which is why Avi Shleim goes on to say that the Zionist claim to Palestine was built on exceptionally weak grounds and a misrepresentation of the reality in Palestine at the end of the 19th century. So the creation of the State of Israel gave a territorial dimension to Zionism. Before that, it was an idea and a, and, and a, and a concept. And for some people, it was a belief that um, Jews should um, have a right to their own, own, own land. Um, I think once we're able to feel confident enough to, to understand that you can um, criticize the policies of the state of Israel without being anti-Semitic, and you have to accept that there's some people that will just try and call you anti-Semitic for criticizing Israel. And I, I think you need to be confident enough to accept that that's not true and it's not the case. Um, and actually that's a tactic used to keep people quiet because should you be objective about the truth, you don't need to be emotive or rely on how people might be feeling or what people might be thinking. You just have to be completely objective about the reality of what's happening in Palestine and the facts present themselves. And you can refer to, I think just two or three weeks ago, um, the ex-Prime Minister of Israel, uh, his name's Yair Lapid, and he, quote unquote, he said that um, if the media is objective, it only serves Palestinians, um, and was suggesting that the media should continue to adopt a bias because should it be objective and fact-based, it doesn't serve the Israeli interests. Um, but to tell the truth isn't to be anti-Semitic. And no one should have a fear for the truth. And that is what a lot of these academics, um, Israeli Jewish academics have been speaking up about. And they refer back to the facts because to be factual um, is not to make a personal observation, is actually to make a fact-based observation. And I think that's one of the things that I would suggest that everyone begins to do. It's a responsibility on everyone to educate themselves and be able to make fact-based observations of, of what's happening. Um, to quote Avi Shleim again, there's a phrase that Israeli generals use. Um, it's quite a disgusting and disturbing phrase, but it's called mowing the lawn. Um, it's a chilling metaphor, and it means that they have no solution to the problem, and the problem being the Palestinian problem. 
So every few years, the IDF moves with the most advanced weaponry. And we've seen what this weaponry looks like. It's been shared on social media. Some of the bombs and arms that are being sold to Israel, partly by Britain, which means we all have a responsibility, funded by the American taxpayer, um, where you have bombs which are spiked with blades to make sure that when these bombs fall, um, they completely obliterate any person in the vicinity uh, and rip them to shreds. That's the kind of advanced weaponry being used on civilian populations. But this is part of mowing the lawn. Um, and mowing the lawn, the metaphor is to cut the grass, to begin to cut the grass, to cut away the lawn, to smash up the place, degrade the military capabilities. Um, and it's a mechanical action that you have to take every few years periodically uh, until the problem disappears and the problem being the Palestinians. So Palestinians live in this reality where there's no end to the bloodshed and the next war or the next bout of violence is always around the corner. Now for Palestinians, they've accepted uh, their fate or they're, they're told to accept their fate. And there is an expectation on Palestinians to leave or die quietly, which is unacceptable. Um, Avi Shleim goes on to say that when you uh, leave people um, in such hopeless uh, reality and environment um, where they have nothing to live for and to hope for, um, this is in itself a great catastrophe um, for people to be living in. I wanted to quote um, Gabor Mate again, because um, there's a lot of talk at the moment, again, and uh, a lot of trouble around the semantics of exactly what's happening in um, Palestine at the moment. The word genocide is being branded at the moment. And there is, of course, um, debate around whether that's an appropriate term to use. Um, Gabor Mate actually says that he he hates using uh, he hates using the term genocide because uh, he believes that this should be reserved for extermination of a people, um, as was attempted by the industrial um, scale genocide uh, in the Holocaust. But by international standards, he goes on to say, what is happening in Gaza right now is a genocide. Now, for me, there is a genocide occurring of the Palestinian people. Um, and I, again, refer to another um, Israeli academic, um, Norman Fink Finkelstein, who I, again, would, would cite as a reference for everyone to, to look into. Um, is because when it comes to genocide, the most difficult thing to prove is intent. And it's utterly clear what the intent of not the Israeli people, the Israeli leadership currently imposing this human suffering on the Palestinians 
um, have openly cited as their intentions to enact on the, on the Palestinians. And when the subjectivity of genocide is usually based around uh, intent, for any law students, I was a pretty terrible law student about 10 years ago, um, intention, mens rea, is often the really difficult thing to find when it comes to things like murder, mass murder, genocide. But the intention has never been clearer because you just have to quote verbatim what um, Israeli leaders are saying. Um, and I think there's, a, there's loads of attempts for people to try and um, reinterpret what people are saying verbatim and suggest that, oh, no, but this is actually what they mean. And, and that's fundamentally, again, when we come down to objectivity, all you have to do is just listen to the words from the horse's mouth and what some of the leaders are saying. Um, I've got something here which, just in this conflict alone, I'm going to read out some quotes from uh, Israeli officials inciting genocide in their own words. So, and, and some of the, the hateful speech in their own words. Benjamin Netanyahu, who's the current Prime Minister of Israel, um, on October the 17th, 2023, he said that this is a struggle between the children of light and the children of darkness, between humanity and the law of the jungle. And that night, there was devastating airstrikes on the civilian population of Gaza. And this was used um, as a, a statement of justification um, because the Palestinians fundamentally are quote unquote, the children of darkness. And then on October the 28th, um, Netanyahu uh, said that you must remember what Amalek has done to you, says our Holy Bible, and we do remember. And to cite what he meant when he said Amalek from the Bible, this is uh, the verse that he was citing. He said in the Bible, now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And again, that night, there was um, an utterly devastating attack on the civilian population. Yoav Gallant, who is uh, the defense minister of Israel, um, he came out and called all Palestinians in Gaza um, human animals, um, and then said that food, water, fuel um, would be restricted um, and won't be allowed in um, again because these aren't humans, these are human animals. And if we just look back into history and try to learn from our past, um, when people are subjugated to less than human, um, this is used as a precursor for genocide. And there's a terrifying irony that this was some of the callous language that was used against Jews before the industrial mass murder that occurred um, in the Holocaust because um, the Nazis tried to uh, ban the Jews as, as, as less than human. Um, 
to then desensitize from what um, was going to take place. Israel's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Eli Cohen, on October the 18th said, at the end of this war, not only will Hamas no longer be in Gaza, but the territory of Gaza will also decrease. Again, suggesting that there's going to be a reoccupation of Gaza and uh, this is a war of uh, uh, conquest. And actually today, um, I think it was reported that Netanyahu said that at the end of this um, violence that there will be uh, a reoccupation of Gaza or an annexation that hasn't been, annexation hasn't been reported directly, but um, there will be a reoccupation. And then uh, Israeli Knesset member Ariel Kalna on October the 8th said, right now, one goal, Nakba. A Nakba that will overshadow the Nakba of 1948. Nakba in Gaza and Nakba to anyone who dares to join. Now the Nakba was the original displacement of um, over 700,000 Palestinians, which um, uh, is when the State of Israel was, was formed. Um, and we've seen the imagery of old, um, uh, really old people, uh, women and children, those that managed to survive, um, being forced out of their homes and uh, trying to travel to safety, trying to travel to safety in the south of Gaza um, and potentially out of Gaza. Um, so we're seeing this um, Nakba play out. And then uh, another Israeli Knesset member, Meirav Ben-Ari, um, on October the 16th said, when people were questioning, how can it be that innocent children, babies, which all of us are seeing, um, can be to blame for any atrocity that the state of Israel is claiming. And she said that the children of Gaza have brought this upon themselves to justify um, their deaths, of which there have been over 4,000 to date. And again, to finish uh, with Yoav Gallen on October the 9th before this assault started, we are fighting human animals and we are acting accordingly. So Norman Finkelstein took a lot of these statements and additionally mentioned that Benjamin Netanyahu said that this is going to be our longest war yet um, and taking on the fact that food, water, fuel uh, was rightfully being withheld from, uh, uh, from Gaza. Um, which means that, and we're already seeing the result of, um, people aren't just gonna die from the airstrikes. Um, there is going to be people dying of dehydration, starvation, uh, and then those that are in hospital, they're gonna be dying because um, lack of care, because there's no energy getting in. All of that he's used to suggest that this is nothing less um, than uh, a genocidal attack on the Palestinians. Um, now, I don't say that, I don't say all of that to, to then be like, well, look, I proved it. There's a genocide happening that doesn't get us anywhere. But it's reminiscent of the fact that certainly myself, um, we grew up sort of reading about a lot of the atrocities that have occurred in history and thought, how on earth could something like this happen? Um, like how on earth 
were people allowed to let this happen? Like, why did no one do anything or say anything? And then you fall into the trap of like, looking inwards again and feeling really helpless and thinking, what am I actually doing and how can I affect any kind of change? Um, the reality is humans have this innate capacity for evil. Everyone has this innate capacity for evil. And when it goes unchecked, you can see it play out in an incomprehensible way as, it, as is being done in Palestine at the moment. To suggest, and I've got people I know and I've been seeing stuff like um, sharing some really vile things um, and even like sanitized phrases like collateral damage uh, and there's a term that really troubles me, which a load of friends of mine have used actually, um, which was, um, what is Israel supposed to do? Um, not this. No one, no one can justify genocide. Um, and if your humanity has been corrupted to the point that you can accept the mass murder of children, I think we're in a particularly troubling time um, for humanity. And that's something that we have to repair. And it's really important that we have to repair. Now, there's, um, I could probably go on a about a lot of the stuff that's happening currently, but there's way more qualified people than me to talk about. Um, and, and I urge everyone to do your research and start looking at what's happening now, but also look at the history. Like I've got loads of notes here, but I, I don't think it's helpful for me to give everyone a history lesson as to what's happening. But right now there is an opportunity for people um, to do something and a load of people are already, um, which is through various means, but actually one of the strongest changes that I've, I've seen and I've seen um, being reported is uh, people are speaking about this uh, in a way that hasn't happened before. Um, and it's becoming difficult to quieten the noise, make people forget or ignore and we have to sort of ride that momentum of making sure that this remains um, a priority in the public conversation. And there have already been changes. We've seen uh, because of the protests that have been happening across the world, and we've seen in the past, right, um, in previous um, protests in recent history, like the BLM protests and, and, and a lot of the stuff that happened, right? That people might feel like, what is it gonna do if I go out and protest? Or what is it going to do if I sh share something or if I speak about this topic? But it's already making a difference. 
just this week, Emmanuel Macron, the uh, leader of France, um, was the first to come out and say, we need to call for a ceasefire. That wouldn't have happened if people weren't speaking up about what's happening in Palestine. Macron is not an ally to Palestinians. He's one of the biggest Islamophobes that exist in Europe. And even he felt the pressure enough to see that enough people were talking about this, that something needs to be said. We know there's gonna come a time where people try to distance themselves from what's happening today and what's been happening. And people are gonna try and to be, people are going to try and be revisionist uh, and distance themselves from problematic um, things that they may have associated with before. There was a time that people supported apartheid in South Africa and genuinely believed that uh, an inferiority of black people um, versus the whites was justified. We can go back further and look at all of the other atrocities. We don't need to because we know that whenever there is human catastrophe, there are people who genuinely believe that the status quo must remain. And in, in those examples, we can look back now and understand that there was a right and a wrong. And a lot of the time, the people that either stayed quiet or were on the other side can quietly distance themselves from what they may have facilitated. Which is why I come back to the point that it's so important for everyone else who is trying for their own moral conscience to create distance from what's happening right now, which is the most important thing in the world. Um, and, and it's hard to ignore, and for good reason, it's hard to ignore. Um, I think it's for everyone to really take a stand in some capacity and not feel like um, nothing they do or say um, will make a difference. And that's not to say that you need to go out and protest now or that you need to start shouting about um, uh, uh, these new things that you might be discovering. It could just start with actually caring enough to do a bit of research and educating yourself. Now, there's something that I read which I completely agree with, um, that staying silent and distancing yourself from a matter um, doesn't give you the moral high ground of being impartial or balanced. What it does is it enables you to facilitate the status quo. And if the status quo that exists is violent, and unacceptable, your silence or your inaction or your inability uh, to inwardly even take a stand is what facilitated that current status quo framework. And to bring that closer to home um, and try to illustrate that would mean that if this was apartheid South Africa and you thought, mm, this isn't really for me, I think I'm just gonna let this play out with those that are involved enabled apartheid South Africa uh, to exist for as long as it did. We can apply this to any uh, civil rights movement um, and even further uh, to other stains on humanity. So it begins with an education um, unto yourself um, and then thinking about appropriate ways that 
you might be able to take effective action. And I know it's hard. Like I started this whole thing saying that this is an incredibly hard thing to talk about. It is. It's difficult for me to do this now. And I don't even know that I've articulated myself very well. Haven't talked about half of the things that I wanted to talk about. But all I know is that distancing yourself from this or any of these issues um, is what accounts to complicity, um, whether you see it that way or not, which is why it's important to extend yourself uh, to understand what's happening um, and really make a moral stand. To, to finish, I, I, I do want to end on something which is um, a bit more hopeful. Um, and again, I'm going to reference um, one of my favorite writers, uh, Yuval Noah Harari, who I referenced before. And actually, one of the things that he says is um, talking about politicians who I think have fundamentally let us down. Um, and he makes, uh, he uses the metaphor of being in hospital, which is quite pertinent because a lot of those that are suffering now are, are, are doctors and, and, and medical personnel. In hospital where there is an injury, your responsibility is to heal it, not to widen it, not to use the injury to cause more injuries. How do you translate that into policy in extremely difficult situations? This is the role of the politicians. And this is exactly why I think there's been a complete dereliction of leadership um, in the context of uh, a world where far-right nationalist populism is really running rampant. But what we do know from history, even though it seems utterly impossible at the moment, over the longer term of decades, of generations, wounds do heal. If people make the right decisions, it is possible. Just today, um, I saw a video, um, which of course gave me some hope. And, and it's, it was a moment for pause because we have to understand that this current fascist Israeli government, the coalition government, and I don't say that lightly, because in this current coalition, and I ask you to go away and research, um, this current Israeli government has um, uh, a minister called Ben Gavir and another minister called uh, Smotrich. Ben Gavir has been convicted um, of terrorism by the Israeli courts. So he's actually a convicted terrorist in Israel and he's currently a senior minister uh, in the Israeli government. Smotrich is a self-proclaimed fascist, homophobic fascist, because I know there's a lot of pinkwashing happening at the moment as well. Smotrich is a self-proclaimed homophobic fascist, and he's another senior minister in this Israeli government. Now, this government, Netanyahu himself, before this year, wouldn't share a stage with these two men because they were too extreme. But in order to stay in power, he had to form this coalition. And these individuals are influencing the policy of Israel the Israeli state at the highest level. This government is not representative of Israeli people. And that's something that we have to remember. The same way when I think of the leadership of Britain, I'm not represented by Suella Braverman or by Rishi Sunak, by some of the racists that are in government at the moment. 
I don't agree with anything that they say. And we have to remember the same applies to the Israelis. There's been a lot of controversy around the, the, the famous infamous chant by Palestinians um, where they say from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And today I saw Israelis protesting, shouting, and this is the chant and I read, it says, from Rafa to Golan, human rights for everyone. And that was profoundly powerful because if you understand what that means, that means from Rafa uh, in the south, where Gaza is bordering Egypt, to Golan, the Golan Heights, which borders uh, Syria and Lebanon, which covers the span of Israel, much in the same way, the concept of from the river to the sea. And then they said human rights for everyone, recognizing that there is an equality that exists on that land. And that is fundamentally what the Israelis want. And that's because the peace for Israelis and Palestinians are fundamentally intertwined and one can't have peace without the other. Um, so I hope we take that sentiment forwards and that people educate themselves um, into some form of effective action. If I've made any mistakes, please do forgive me, correct me, um, but don't stop talking about what's happening in Palestine. Thank you.